Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Rule the World, the ultimate power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience, and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life, to help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host, Paul Furlong. Well, hello and welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. My name is Paul Furlong, creative director at Opus Media. And I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you know the power of storytelling. And I want you to bring that power to your own writing with Roger Shulman at thewritercoach.com. Roger's unique coaching method connects your personal story to whatever you're writing, giving it heart and depth. The result, your presentation, website copy, keynote address, or screenplay becomes compelling, entertaining, and persuasive. Roger is the winner of a British Academy Award and nominee for the Oscar and the Emmy. So go to thewritercoach.com and schedule a free discovery session. Let Roger bring the Hollywood to your writing. Today's guest is Professor Polly Wiesner. Polly is Professor of Anthropology at the University of Utah and Arizona State University. Over the past 40 years, she's conducted research among the Kung Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert. She is currently studying conversations and activities that take place after dark to understand how extending the day with firelight enhanced human sociality. So Polly, welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit more about you? I've only given you a brief introduction and I don't think I got my uh, pronunciation of Kung Bushmen there. I got the click kind of... Well, you're doing pretty well. A little more yeah, connection absolutely. there. Absolutely. Um, so, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you uh, and and your history uh, of all of the fascinating things that you've been been studying over the past forty years? And maybe if you could start off with telling me how to pronounce that properly. Okay. Well, I I work in field two field sites, and I first went to the Kung 
or Junghuasi. Junghuasi means real people. That's what they call themselves. The Junghuasi Bushmen in 1973 to do studies of social networks. I was interesting on a, working on a very interesting question. I mean, we have money in the bank, maybe salaries, social security. Others have cattle, grain in the larder. The Bushmen are hunters and gatherers, and they have no storage and no security. So my question was, how do what do people do when the environment fails, when there's no food in their area? How do they survive? That was my question I went with. And I discovered that they had networks with people up to 200 kilometers away with a mutual understanding, if you're in need, I'll help you and um, vice versa. And to underwrite this thing, they would always be sending these most beautiful gifts, beads and other things to let people know that the relationship was still alive. So that was my original work there. And since then, I've been studying what happens to networks with change and to people with change as they get settled, as they get cell phones, some of them become connected on the internet. So I have like a 45-year perspective from real hunter-gatherers to mixed economy today. And um, my second field site is completely different. It's among the Anga of Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is the big island above Australia. And these are some of, in the past, were very, very warlike tribes. And I've also worked with their oral traditions but right now we're studying war and peace and particularly the question of what happens when you replace bows and arrows with high-powered weapons. So that's fascinating work over 30 to 40 years. But today we're going to concentrate on the Bushmen. Um, in both places I do scientific work. I go every year for a couple months to each place to keep up. And then the people there really become family and you get to know them and you follow them through time and your understanding it gets to be much deeper. You also have to help with development to give back. And so I also do development projects, which is to try to did a museum and cultural education um, to keep cultural knowledge alive and have also worked in the Kalahari with food security because with climate um as a climate of today, um, there are a lot of periods of, of rather severe hunger. I can well imagine that that's the case. It all, all sounds very, very fascinating what you do. I, I can't imagine um, what what your life has been like. It, it's very different than most of our lives. I can imagine traveling around and, and spending time with, with these these people. It must be, must be absolutely amazing. So can you tell me uh, about the difference that uh, when when our human ancestors first controlled fire and what difference that made to, uh, to to the human race. Yes. Okay, so we think now the best evidence coming from Israel is that fire was controlled first somewhere around 350 to 400,000 years ago. Some people push it back earlier, but we don't have good evidence for that. And what difference did it make? A huge difference. Before Humans, probably like other primates, were foraging individually. So, uh, you know, everyone in the family would go out and get their own food and eat it in the bush. And with fire and then cooking, people began to bring it into a central place for cooking, which meant in the evening 
you had gatherings and you had food sharing. And of course, food sharing evens out unequal returns and so really secures people. Um, it allowed people to sleep on the ground because of predators. They could ward off predators. And when you can cook food, you get much more, many, many more calories are available to you. And so if you have a potato that has 100 calories, if you cook it, you may be able to get 150 out of it. This made sharing cheaper because you needed less food. You could cook it and you got more calories. So a lot of human sociality developed around that. But what it also did is it extended the day with firelight. When you go to someone like the Bushmen, they are staying up five hours after dark, singing and talking and laughing and celebrating. This is time which is socially very productive, but economically not. At night, you can't go out and do anything. So that, when together with language, when we acquired language, and this is not known yet, but together with language, um, you know, this made these five hours added so much in terms of information exchange to people and also sociality and mediating problems and so on. So fire made a big difference. So the way that hunter-gatherer societies interact is very different during the day than it is at, is at night. And you just kind of hinted at that a little bit in terms of kind of information exchange at night and, and what goes on at the day. So can you expand a little bit on that for me? Yeah, well, it's a little interesting story how I got into this. When I went out first to deal with my problem of, you know, what pe how people secure themselves, it was I happened to come across a very bad year and people were really, really hungry. And I was about a oh, 14 hour drive through the bush and I could not bring out food to feed them. So I was kind of ostracized. No one wanted to talk to me. And so I sat there and looked at conversations. And then I also noticed that during the day, people are always on to each other's cases. You know, give me this. He gave that to whom. There's jealousy. There's a lot of criticism. I think I found that, let's see, I have the figures here. 36% of conversations were about food and how to get it and where it was. 16% were joking. 34% were complaints and criticisms about who gave what to whom and didn't give it to whom, the spice of life. And then at nighttime, even with me, everything changed. No one asked me for any, all day long, people were asking me for help for this, for that, for sugar, for tea. But at nighttime, nobody bothered me at all. And 80, 81% of the conversations were stories and a lot of these were about, you know, their partners, their exchange partners who lived 200, 100 kilometers away. Um, very little complaint and criticism. Um, some myths and st other stories were told. And um, yes, so it was just like it was really day and night there. And it's kind of not allowed to get onto someone's case at night unless there's been a really big blow up and then that would continue and why do you think this is why what what did you discover the the reason for this shift in in the the interaction was between the day and the night yes well we're we're looking at this um i think at night there are a few things i we want to study you know the effect of firelight first of all on the, your whole hormonal system it seems to relax 
then people don't see people's faces so clearly. Faces are really remarkable by firelight. And um, I think also people are a little bit worried about the night and they want to have, they want to go to bed with good relations. You know, they, if there were some tensions in the day, um, and the day is very harsh. It's hot. The sun is strong. And at night, it mellows out. And I think people really were seeking times of relaxation, of, of social reunification. So thinking about the stories that they were, were telling at night, you said that they were, they were telling stories about um, maybe some other groups of trading partners that were in maybe a distance away. They were telling some myths and, and legends um, what what were the significance of those stories that they were telling? And, and did they have different uh, outcomes that they were trying to achieve through telling those stories? Or, or were they simply just recounting the day and, and, and the history of their ancestors? Yes. No, um, this were mostly the, the stories that I worked with were real stories about real people. And really, you had people... They're so well told. I, I should send you actually a recording from this so you can hear the expression in it. But people are, sometimes they're just laughing. Otherwise, if it's sad, they're crying. If it's um, something about a predator or lion who attacks someone, they're biting their fingernails. You know, it's really, they're very exciting. And what do they do? Well, first of all, I think what's very important is they give the, you remember, these people live in groups of 25 to 40 people, and they move around a lot. They have a lot of partnerships. It gives them really the big picture of their society. You know, what it really gives them sort of what you might call an imagined community. It brings alive people within one or 200 kilometers into a community and gives them a sense of community, even though they because of the foraging way of life, you cannot support big groups. So that's the thing that it, re it really did. And, it, and because they're not physically coherent in time and space, these groups, it gives them a big a sense of a virtual group, which happens to us, of course, now with the Internet, very much so. Another thing they do is they, sh they give people information on how social and cultural institutions work, like marriage procedures are, are, are very, very complicated and meaningful. But people, because they live in small groups, some people may only, by the time they marry, have seen one marriage, or by the time they're 42 or three. And these stories, which recount all the details, then really show them how cultural institutions work, you know, how the rules, the regulations, what happens when people broke them, how you find a mate. So they give, you know, they give the cultural norms in, in these stories. And the other thing that I think is really, really um, important is uh, it brings people emotionally on the same base. So they've been out hunting and gathering, and they may have had some quarrels, and they come back at night, and the story gets everyone laughing together, crying together. These stories also are very descriptive of people's actions and feelings because the Bushmen are wonderful at pantomime, so they have a lot of pantomime. So it gives a sense of empathy. It gets people to mind read, you know, how people were feeling, how other people were feeling. And this has been shown here in literature, that literature, reading literature increases empathy. And these stories definitely do when they see people in other dire straits. They begin to, to develop more empathy 
So um, I think those are the main things they do, but it's quite a bit. And then, of course, they bring everyone together before they go to sleep. They relax people. You mentioned then that they're really good at, at pantomime and that, that when you they were telling stories that if it was a, about a wild animal that they were biting their fingers uh, and what have you. So what makes them so good at, at the storytelling? What What is it that what elements of storytelling do they bring into it that makes them so good at their storytelling? Yeah, I think one, th- one thing may just be that these are some of the most observant people in the world because when you're hunting, gathering, you're reading tracks from game, the women are trying to also, you know, read certain signals in the environment, also socially, because there are n- really no formal institutions for justice or settling quarrels. People are very, very perceptive. And then a few of the well-known storytellers just, you know, they just pick up every detail and the funny details about people. These stories are not always factually true, but they ring true. So if they're talking about somebody, it may not be, it may be a bit exaggerated what he or she did or said. But, you know, it's very characteristic of the person. And so everyone's laughing. So I think, you know, also you don't have all this artificial communication and radio and TV and stuff. So then I think you notice your, your surroundings with, in much more detail. And how, how does the fact that it's kind of dark around, around the outside and, and the, you only see kind of part of them uh, because of the, the firelight and the shadows, does, does that come into play? at all with the the storytelling? Oh, absolutely, for the imagination, because when, first of all, if you tell a story, you don't see other people's facial expressions, so that doesn't distract you. Usually, if you tell a story, you might think he looked angry or she looked happy, but so that's kind of neutral. And there's something fascinating about the flames, and then people are all in an envelope of darkness, you know, and so they're together in this. So it goes back to the oral tradition, doesn't it? which is is throughout all of storytelling it doesn't matter where you look in in the history of storytelling it started as an oral tradition and it's still going on here with the bushman isn't it um unlike a lot of places where storytelling has maybe gone into movies or or literature um the bushman are still using the oral tradition of storytelling absolutely but we are too i mean i'm just thinking in this time of covid when you have people outside at six foot distance with a glass of wine, what are you doing? You're telling stories, you know? And then if you tell stories, a funny story about someone, you may pick up the phone and call them the next day because you haven't had contact. That's exactly what happens with the Bushmen. If they hear a really good story, they say, oh, I really miss this person. And they may go 60 kilometers to visit them. And that's what keeps these networks alive. But stories are, are, oh, they're so important on many, many levels. And I also, in New Guinea, work with restorative justice and allowing people to tell their stories, you know, is what can bring about peace again. So, yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit? That sounds really fascinating. How do the stories um, play such an important role in in, in in the Papua New Guinea? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is a this is a culture, the Anga, with very high levels of violence, and they have formal courts, which are Western courts, and they have customary courts. And in the customary courts, they're held out 
with the sky above and the mud below and the rain coming down and pigs running through and dogs and so on. And people take over an issue, over an, a, some kind of a wrongdoing. They may discuss it for two or three hours. And each person gets to tell their story. There's a respectful hearing. And then there's usually some form of atonement on the part of the wrongdoer to the person who was harmed. And the emphasis is making up the person harmed. But you find that even when there are tribal wars and you watch the settlements to these things, just the idea that someone could tell their story and be heard in public takes care of half of the problem. Because you then you get empathy, understanding, apology, atonement. That's amazing. So, so, so coming back to the to the the Bushmen, um, what does what does it tell us about kind of the origins of storytelling for for the whole of kind of humanity, going back to the beginning of of the human race? We don't really know, but I mean, people will put forward hypotheses like it's to tell people where to find resources and so on. In some cases, this is true, but I think what most of it is about is understanding other people, understanding their feelings, their experiences. People also gain quite a bit of social attention if they have a really good story about themselves. This thing travels for hundreds of kilometers and people everywhere are laughing and telling it. So it's also a way of expanding your networks individually. But I think it gives people a much, yeah, I think it gives them a sense of empathy and you know in the day there's so many complaints to control sharing who gave what to whom didn't give it to this person and that and then at night you have all of that kind of mediated again in stories and people come back on the same emotional base i think this is something we miss very much in our society and maybe behind some of our sleep problems in that we don't talk it through we don't settle the things of the day before we go to sleep. We turn out that light without, you know, sort of mellowing our feelings. And I think this is very important. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that brings me on to the next question that I was going to ask you, which is, is what can we take away from everything that you've learned in, in your 40 years around storytelling that we can be implementing into, into our society and into, into our storytelling? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we have a multi-billion dollar business or trillion in um, storytelling. We have uh, we have books, we have TV, all, all these forms. Um, but the problem is, is that it's important to also have time together. So um, these forms of media, it's been shown that literature increases empathy. So could some movies, they can change people's mood. But... You know, we also need time together. And so very often now we are dealing with some of the wonderful points of stories, but at a distance to the neglect of the people around us. And I think it's very important, you know, with the dissolution of the family meal, at least in the States, people don't eat together. They're all on their own computers. It's also important to tell your own stories, the story from your day, from your own group. and. We also are not encouraged to tell them well. 
you know, to, to, I mean, before in the past, I grew up in Vermont and things were very different then. And people would sit around and, you know, you would tell your story in great detail and people would not be impatient. So I think time together is something that is very important. I also think to find some way to wind down before you go to sleep and, you know, to, to level out, to mellow out good mood and stories are good for this. Absolutely. I've got got two two small children we read them stories before they go to sleep and the nights when maybe they're going to bed really late and we we don't have time to read them a story they don't sleep nearly as well when we do um and and there's an app over here in the uk i don't know if if it's over there in the us as well called calm and uh and there's bed bedtime stories for grown-ups on there uh like some matthew mcconaughey and, and people like that reading bedtime stories for adults yeah um so I, I take that point absolutely it's it's so important to do that isn't it and uh um, and, and so um, you said it's it's important to tell your story well, and you've mentioned a couple of things that you, you've you've I've heard you say uh, about humour quite a few times in uh, in that, and um, and we talked about the kind of the pantomime that's used for the for the bushman around the the campfire. So, what else would you add in to to what makes a well told story? What makes a well told story? Well, the thing that I mentioned before that it doesn't have to be true, but it rings true. If it doesn't ring true, it's it's going to be a total flop. So you have to you have to see what the essence of somebody or an event was. Often the funny parts, but the real essence, and you have to get there, and not just sort of tell it factually. And sometimes you have to exaggerate because they're not there and they don't see it. Yeah, that's that's one thing. And then you know perception, and then some people. I mean, not ever, not all the Bushmen are good storytellers. Some people are just very gifted with words. But we, on, it's not true for you Brits so much, but in America, we don't put a lot of um, emphasis on good oratory in our country. And I think that's an extremely important thing to bring into schools, to get people to tell their stories, to tell them in a lively way, to to um, transmit their feelings so other people can understand them. Um, when I was in school long ago, we used to have, you know, public speech in which we were encouraged to do this. And I think we could do more of this so that, you know, people can get more expressive and help communication, understanding. It's also more interesting, you know, if, yeah, if you tell the thing well, people will pay attention. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. So I've just got a couple of uh, quick fire questions to ask you, Polly, if that's okay. Um, so when you hear the word story, who do you think of and why do you think of them? When I hear the stories, I think of here, I think of in the US, I think of the wonderful stories on NPR. And yeah, I mean, these have some of the best storytellers, absolutely fantastic. But um, when I'm in New Guinea, that's what people do they sit around at night and tell stories in chat but they also recount for in the men's house they recount the whole history of their tribe and what happened and so on so there's very factual information in the stories and there's very funny information in the stories and in the bushmen um some of the myths are absolutely gripping and fascinating although those are dying out but you know there's just nothing like I call I, I just sleep outside under the stars. I just throw my mattress on the ground and I call it the 5,000 star hotel. And 
there's nothing like, you know, sitting around the fire in the 5,000 star hotel and hearing these incredible expressions. And even if you can't understand the language, you understand the feelings to transmit feelings. Amazing. And can you recommend any good books or websites or blogs or podcasts or anything where we might be able to learn some more about storytelling? I know there's one, Ted put out a book, put out a book on Ted stories, you know, and Ted talks on how to tell that. And then there's a wonderful book here, which I'll send you the reference to analyzing literature and stories. And then probably you probably have something in Britain, like our NPR for storytelling. Yeah. I mean, we, we if we've got uh, digital radio, we can get NPR over here as well. Yeah. And I mean, the NPR really has some of the most masterful stories ever. So I'll see if I can think of think of some more. Brilliant. Thank you. And last question for you, Polly, where can we find out a bit more about you? Uh, where can we go online to, to, to find your works and your writings and, uh, and learn more about you? Well, there's one, I, I, you just have to Google my name, <laughs> but there's one article, the one I sent you, and that one really is the article, the main article I've written on Bushman stories. And um, that summarizes a lot of what I said. And otherwise, you know, you just have to Google and there's a whole mess of stuff. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> Maybe the good, the bad and the ugly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's also a profile. My work was profiled in 2010 in Science magazine. That's brilliant. Well, Polly, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you today. Yes. Good. Okay. Been lovely talking to you and we'll catch up with you again soon. Thank you. Bye for now. Okay. Thanks so much for your interest. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of Rule the World. Be sure to rate, review and subscribe to the show and visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you and see you next time. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.